Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thank you for joining us for another episode of In the Landscape. We are so delighted that you are listening and Mm -hmm. we're excited to be here in studio for another episode. My name is Kate Sadler. And I'm Charles Sadler. And we are here to present to you on topics of landscape design, our landscape travels, care of the landscape. And we thought with the change of the month we've entered into September here, and our seasons are about to start changing, we are looking forward to fall. You can actually do quite a bit of landscaping work in fall, even if a cold winter is on the horizon, depending on where you're located. Before we get to that, though, I think I comment on the podcast a lot, (laughs) the fact that it is a podcast and we get to talk with our listeners and we get to make corrections and add to what we've spoken about before. And we have another one of those opportunities today. So we have a couple Mm -hmm. of items that are ever evolving that we wanted to chat about. In our last episode, it just came out last Wednesday, the road trip, we talked a little bit about the roadside landscape management that takes place that municipalities are always trying to stay on top of because plants are always growing. And that may include mowing with big machinery or cutting back the trees that are encroaching on the roadway. And I was reminded of a a really delightful form of landscape management that I've Mm -hmm. seen out in California and then even more recently in New York State. That's the use of goats. All right. (laughs) There's nothing more exciting than passing a hillside that has a bunch of goats on it. (laughs) In California, I know they were used because they don't heat up the way mechanical landscape maintenance tools might. They're not going to spark. And obviously, wildfire management is a big deal in California. So not only are you clearing brush, but you're not accidentally sparking something that blows up out of control. And in New York, I was passing Riverside Park. Now that's on the edge of Manhattan. It overlooks the Hudson River. And it's actually a park that was created over the tunnel that the Amtrak train uses to make its way out of Manhattan off of the island going north. Good observation. Yeah, it's really neat. So you'll hear the train go by and the air will come up from these big vents. And it's beautiful. It has these big alleys of trees and, of course, the view of the river. And there are some wild areas, sort of like the Ramble in Central Park, and they're using goats to manage that vegetation as well. So I saw the sign. (laughs) um, (laughs) Goats at work. (laughs) Yeah, goats at work. Absolutely. And they actually have, I want to make sure I reference it correctly. It is the Riverside Park Conservancy that I have started following on Twitter. And they have videos of the goats in action (laughs) and interviews with the goat handlers that all about what this project entails. So mm-hmm. have you seen goats in action yourself? You know, Charles? there's another president. I remember it was on the news. It was probably several years ago, roughly. In Washington, D.C., there's a, a congressional cemetery. So I imagine people that were in Congress and be buried there. I'm not sure any more than that. And when you have an old a landscape like that that's there for hundreds of years, the vegetation management is a lot. So there's often mowing and maybe there's some tree work and maybe not else. So plants like vines, uh, there's a lot of invasive species, and then some non, like poison ivy, is is actually a beneficial. I mean, you can give people a, a rash, but it's ecologically beneficial. So even a vine like that can take over, and they use goats to uh, manage 
the eating back of vines and other invasive species. And it's amazing what they can eat. I mean, my understanding is that they can handle the vines that are maybe an irritant to humans. They actually right. eat those. <laughs> They're totally fine. Something like poison oak in the West or poison ivy in the East. So, you know, in another episode, we talked about, I guess it was maybe the screening episode about screening and using a ha-ha. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, I don't know if we mentioned that at the time, but the reason for the ha-ha is often that the grass was mown by sheep. Uh-huh. And so- yeah. You look out, it'd be like a main large estate. You look out on, on rolling lawn and the sheep were mowing the grass. And so that the sheep didn't walk up to your front window, oh. <laughs> you'd have this, this dry trench, a ha ha. And then the grass would get mown. And uh, it's, it's similar now. They have like robotic lawn mowers. It's sort of the same idea. It's just always working. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, we, we love those goats. It's a delight to see them. Be sure to follow the Riverside Park Conservancy on Twitter if you want to. They're at Riverside Park NY. We'll go ahead and add a link in our show notes just to follow their goat campaign, which is fantastic. And from goats, we're going back to oaks. Oh, we right. have some more oak information that oak. you'd like to share. It seems like we, we're talking about oaks a lot, but it's a dominant tree species throughout the world. So one, remember in an early episode, we talked about how the live oak can get quite large. So it's not always the right plant, the right place. Actually, I, and I just uh, looked up Mexican oaks, so here in the Southwest U.S., Mexican oaks thrive. So even though you're not in Mexico, but you could be in a Southern U.S. state. And so there's various Mexican oaks that look very similar to a live oak, but don't get as large. There's a Mexican white oak, blue oak, and there, there are lots of others. There's, there's about this article, uh, which, is, which quotes the Morton Arboretum, which is near Chicago. It's in Illinois. It cites, when you think of Mexico, you wouldn't necessarily think of oaks, but there's there's 160 species of oak in Mexico, which is more than anywhere else in the world, according to the article. Wow, that's excellent. We may link to that article. And if any of our listeners from Mexico want to share pictures of beautiful oak trees from their own landscape, we welcome that on our various social media. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we jump into talking about fall? In this particular article, which we'll give a link to, there's a picture of a oak, which is the size probably of, of an orange or a grapefruit, which is pretty incredible, which grows in Mexico. Oh, is yeah, wow. That's quite the picture. It's right. an a- is that an acorn? It's an acorn, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yes, it's a giant acorn the size of a person's hand. And so, so as uh, I think while the Morton Arboretum is is keen, I'm guessing is as temperatures rise, species that like we're going to talk about the sugar maple. So that is so special for its fall color and that's actually retreating. So it's as temperatures rise, that plant likes it cold. So the Mexican oaks, as temperatures rise in, for, for urban planting, that's a species. I know uh, Cornell is doing hybridizing of oaks for urban, urban trees, and the Mexican oaks being integrated. So that's going to start to appear in cities more. Great. And the Morton Arboretum, did you mention where that is? Yeah, that's in Illinois. Illinois so it's Illinois. about maybe 45 minutes from Chicago or so. Excellent. That's, a, right. that's a real, that's a very special place to visit. And stay tuned, because we're going to have a whole episode on... Chicago, the city. It's a mm-hmm. great landscape city. We talk a lot about New York. Of course, we've recently opened an office in Houston. So we talk a lot about Texas, but we do want to touch on other regions that we visited in the US and Chicago's a big one. Right. So very we'll special landscape history, architecture history, commodities. It's where, it's where a lot of food in the US passes through there on a culture and history. So we have been fortunate to spend a lot of time in the northeastern part of the United States, which is fall color central. So if you see 
posters of fall foliage. It's often, you know, a covered bridge in Massachusetts or I don't know, Vermont or something. And just as this episode airs, you're actually going to be on your way back to our New York office. And it is located in a town called Hastings on Hudson. It is on the Hudson. It's the (laughs) whole town has a view of the Hudson River across the river. So Hastings is on the eastern side of the river. And across the river on the western side is this geological formation called the Palisades. And these have been largely protected for a great stretch from about the George Washington Bridge in New York City up to... About Hastings, roughly. Yeah, right up. And Piermont. Like right before you get to the, the bridge, the Tappancy Bridge that crosses the Hudson. Yeah. And it's these cliff sides. This is where those robber barons of the 1800s built these massive mansions because it's so beautiful. And across the river, you see these great cliff sides covered in deciduous trees that bring out this fall foliage. And so you'll be arriving maybe a little he- ahead of peak. Is that correct? Right. Well, the peak, let's see if you're in, I mean, like a, we could just jump right into like the Schwangongs, the Catskills. I think that starts, there's a beautiful, very special, it's a hotel and a, and a preserve, a hiking area called Mohunk, the Mohunk Mountain House, which is, we've done like a family reunion there one time, which I think was about the middle of October and it was peak. So it, it like depending on the, how much it rained in the summer and in the fall, it affects the fall color some. I mean, there are maps that will get track Oh, right. fall peak times for you. And sometimes it's later than one would expect or the, it lasts a little longer than one would expect. It, mm-hmm. it is variable. I remember even like when the New York Times used to be, it's still printed on paper, of course, but I haven't subscribed in paper in a long time. So now it's whether it's paper or digital, it's a, it's a map which shows the fall foliage, which is quite exciting. So folks take boats up the Hudson River. It was wonderful to have a front row seat to this, this seasonal change. What in that landscape made it so gorgeous? Like what, do we, what are we seeing when we think of the brightest fall foliage? Well, what's so special about the northeastern United States, it goes into Canada, which is really, so it's northeastern North America, I should really be saying. And then also Japan. So it's, I'm not an expert on, on the geography of Japan, but more or less like central Japan. So on the east coast, you have Tokyo, roughly speaking. And on the west coast, roughly, you have Kyoto. So that part of Japan, I know, I visited, so that part I know more than the rest of Japan, even though I've been to some of it. So let's call it central Japan. There are maple trees. And in the northeastern North America, there's a profusion of maple trees. And so maple trees produce amazing fall color. So that's really, people come from around the world to, to Japan or northeastern North America to see the maple trees. There's the sugar maple. There's the red maple, silver maple. in Japan. There's a multitude of maples. You can plant some of these in your landscape if you happen to be in a region that has an accommodating climate. And you mentioned Canada. Do we have any places we can recommend people visit? I know they have the large maple industry up there. So I bet there's a profusion of trees. And my brother, who's a forester in, in New York State, part of their forestry business is maple syruping. So Quebec is that province is a as a hub of maple syrup for the whole world. Great. So what we would love to do is to connect readers with resources and those who are following our show notes can check out some links to guides that suggest the places in Canada for checking out fall foliage. Mm-hmm. If you happen to be in that country or visiting that country, you have a head, heads up for where to go. I was reading something. I wish I could reference it. I can't remember. 
that was talking about the Yukon as being a surprising place for fall foliage. And that reminded me of a country that I spent quite a bit of time in, which was Finland. And you might be surprised, but Finland, up in the Lapland region, so the very northern part of Finland, there is uh, quite a bit of beautiful fall foliage during their fall season, which they call Ruska uh, in Finnish. And they have no maples that I'm aware of. And uh, <laughs> I'm open to correction, as I said. I think it's, it's a different set of plants that are creating the fall foliage. And that's actually something that we wanted to get into on this episode. Because, of course, we've mentioned, you know, the northeast of North America and the sugar maple. And those are the obvious species that would create fall foliage. But we are mindful that this is an international podcast. And and so we do want to come up with whether we're able to mention the specific species that will work in your region or not. Just the thought that there are other types of plants that might create beautiful fall foliage for you. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to be in a place where it's not common there may be some options. So we'll also link to an article that I found on Lonely Planet, in fact, titled Autumn in Finland, an alternative fall foliage tour, because again, September, October, you're you're maybe even, and again, same with the Yukon, you might even be able to start seeing the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, Mm -hmm. as it starts to get dark during these seasons. And the color is just this Arctic ground cover, spectacular birches, that kind of effect. And I was going to jump in on by studying pictures of that region. What comes to mind, even though I'm not familiar with all the species, is that the fall color comes from from ground cover, whether it's in the northeast or North America. There's the cranberry bogs, which is a uh, like a wetland ground cover type plant where cranberries come from. And then blueberries, uh, that bush also has amazing fall color, whether it's the low bush that's very low, like a ground cover, or the high bush that's probably five or six feet tall. So some of these mountainous, alpine, Nordic landscapes, the fall color could come from ground covers and shrubs where it's really spectacular, just like a cardinal red mountainside. And you mentioned earlier in this episode, poison ivy, which has spectacular fall color. Mm-hmm. So that I'm not suggesting one necessarily plant it unless they can really safely cultivate it in a spot that's not going to get any human foot traffic, but you may not necessarily remove it if you want to see some of that fall color. And there are other vines we're going to mention in this episode that also provide really spectacular color. So it's not just the sugar maples, although those are worth seeing if you can make a trip to the regions um, in which they're prevalent. So for me, I think of spring as planting time. I think that comes from sort of school children aged information about agrarian society and you Mm -hmm. plant your crops in the spring, you tend them all summer and you harvest them in the fall. And since joining King Garden, our landscape design company, it's come to my attention that you can actually plant quite a bit in the fall. But I would think with winter coming on, and of course, this was up when we in the Northeast, when we were doing a lot of work in New York, I would have thought that that was it. You know, summer's over, we're done, put away the shovels and move on. So tell us a little bit about what you can and can't plant in the fall and what what are some of the maintenance items that you should be thinking about as you, you know, winter still is on the horizon, but you can get a lot of benefit out of the landscape still. All right. Okay. Good questions. So let's see. Plants that are going to go dormant. So that's often a deciduous shrub or a tree. Uh, So it could be big, beautiful viburnum or a maple or an oak or a dogwood. So those trees 
they're going to more or less go to sleep in the fall anyways. So whether they're sitting in a nursery above ground in a container or Baldwin bird lab, or whether they're planted at your house or in a park or a college campus. So those can be planted right up through until the ground freezes. I've even done plantings right in December where it's deciduous plant material. So it's whether it's growing or dormant, it can be readily planted. And so it's, there's no harm. It's not dangerous to do that. And it's, you can imagine the root ball is substantial. And so it's not going to be heaved by the frost. Now, on the other end of the spectrum would be perennials. And so those have, let's say they're like you have Shasta daisies or, or another type or, or ornamental grass. Some of those plants, the root balls are not substantial. And when there's a frost, it can get heaved out of the ground. So perennials, can they go in in like early, early fall? Is there still time to get them in the ground? Is it, and is it relative to your frost date? My experience planting perennials in September, so that would be, and then let's say the northern half of, of the United States, and that would include some of Canada. And then in the southern U.S., it'd probably be October. So that would be about the latest to plant. So that if you're going to, you know, some of these very large, whether it's an estate or a civic project where you're doing tens of thousands of perennials, I wouldn't do that undertake. I'd do that in August, let's say. But to plant in September as possible with perennials and, and to do divisions where you have, let's say, a very large hosta or heuchera or daylilies to dig up and with a sharp spade to cut them and to replant them spaced out, September can be a good time for that too. Oh, that's a great recommendation. Are there any other plant types that one should be cautious about around this time of year? I've learned from experience, right? They say there's like the best teacher is your own experience. So broadleaf evergreens in the northern half of the U.S., it can be troublesome to plant them in September. Can you give us some examples of broadleaf evergreens? Uh, sure. So uh, well, uh, rhododendron, azalea, the different types of laurels, skip laurels, cherry laurel, mountain laurel, you know, boxwood and holly. I guess boxwood, the leaves are, are smaller, so those are a little safer. But like, let's say skip laurel or rhododendron, I've had trouble with those where you plant them even in September. So on some larger projects, I reserve planting the broadleaf evergreens just in the spring in the northern half of the U.S. And that what, what happens is that they don't root sufficiently. And then the winter comes and they're losing moisture through their leaves and the roots are frozen. And so they dry out. I'm just going to give a quick shout out to our editors there we have uh, sound editors podcast motor does our editing for oh, us right. they <laughs> and, do a great job. and i think they do a great job editing out all the all the sounds that happen here we always have our two cocker spaniels with us in the studio one of them just sighed and you might not hear that but if you're interested we posted a picture of charles with freckles and hudson on our facebook page and on our twitter feed so if you want our, ma- our mascots yes <laughs> so if you want to meet the hosts and our mascots, go ahead and check those out. I didn't mean to interrupt, but just in case that sound made it into the final edit, I wanted to throw that out there. (laughs) All right. So you said the deciduous plants, they're going dormant. It's a good time to plant them. Perennials can get heaved out of the ground, so tread cautiously. And then essentially the same with the broadleaf evergreens. And mostly because water is going to become tied up in the freezing. Right. So that would really be an anomaly is... You would think, oh, like the frost can heave a perennial. So sod has the shallowest roots of anything, which is a lawn turf. That actually, as long as it's above freezing, that can be, I've done that in December too, in the Northeast. 
So it's the sod comes, the roots are so substantial that I think it's to grow sod, I think it's at least 12 months, maybe 18 months. So it's they have substantial roots. And that can be a way to sort of finish a landscape project. So like there are many roots, but they're in a shallow. It's very dense. Yeah, a dense. Okay, great. And so that can be a way to cover the landscape so you don't have erosion. If you had, let's say there's a construction of like whatever scale that might be. And so the sod prevents erosion. Is that all we have in terms of planting, just general overview of planting? I think so. And so then the next step might be, what else can we do in our landscape? We can take care of it. So pruning and maintenance, what kinds of pruning and maintenance can we still do in some of the months leading up to the colder temperatures? Well, let's see, in the month of, whether it's September or October, so that'd be like in the northern half or the southern half of, the, of North America, you can do light pruning. So it, the shrubs are getting a little unkempt, they can be touched up. There can be some light shaping, whether it's hand pruning or shearing. It's a good time to strategize too for winter pruning. Maybe there's a crab apple tree or another type of a tree, which is a little overgrown, which would be beneficial to do when it's dormant, which would be roughly December to March. And so that could be planned during the fall. Say, oh, you know, we want to, whether you're doing it yourself or you're hiring a professional, I'd like to plan that work. As the holidays come around, people forget about it and it's, it's March or April, the plant starts growing again. And you're like, oh, it's still overgrown. <laughs> then what about irrigation? Now we would start to be, I suppose, maybe even our irrigation companies would be reaching out to us to schedule when they would come by and turn it off. Is right. that something we're starting to think about? And do you need to hand water it all once that's off? Or is their date for turning it off generally correct in terms of your landscape? I mean, there could be a frost almost throughout North America. Even in the southern U.S., there's still frost. The irrigation companies like to shut it off to be conservative well before the chance of frost. So if the frost is like November 1st, the chance, or November 15th, the irrigation company often shuts it off a month before that. So if it's a new planting and there's, let's say, larger shrubs or trees, I encourage hand watering if it's feasible. Because the, the fall, it can be rainy or it can be dry. And so to have six weeks where the plants are dry going into winter... It's not good for them. That doesn't sound ideal. Of course, we have listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, which is thrilling. We're (laughs) truly global in that sense. And so these seasons are going to be about opposite. They'll be entering their spring and summer season as we're heading into fall and winter. So pick this episode back up (laughs) (laughs) as your season approaches. (laughs) We appreciate that and acknowledge all of those listeners. Thank you so much. We've dealt with our pruning and what are some, do you have any other species that folks might plant that would give us beautiful fall color? And then what should we be thinking about in terms of design when we're selecting plants for fall color? Because of course, that only lasts a short period of time, maybe even just a few weeks, depending on how quickly it progresses. And that plant is going to be there 365 days. So what we really advocate is a plant that has year-round interest, four-season interest. So a plant, let's say, that's, that does not, but that's people love the lilac, for instance. And so that, in the landscape, I often like to have that in the midground or the background. So when it's flowering, you can really enjoy it. It's very special. It's to be celebrated. Maybe a cherry tree would be similar to that. The flowers are very pretty. And so plants, uh, we've discussed this a little, plants that are sold in a retail setting to some extent, they're the showstoppers, which could be when they're flowering, they're very exciting, an azalea or a lilac. But for much of the year, they're a little bland. And so what 
good landscape design, good landscape architecture really advocates as a plant that's has significant interest in all four seasons. So very special plants like the oak leaf hydrangea. In the winter, its stems, there are sections where there's a protective fuzzy coating, which is like a light cinnamon, and then it goes into a darker cinnamon. And then as it gets older, the bark exfoliates or flakes off. When the leaves are opening in the spring, they're very architectural. It's very exciting. Uh, There's flowers. The fall color is tremendous on them. It's almost as nice as the sugar maple. The sugar maple itself, the bark is interesting. In, in the winter, the architecture, it's, it's quite upright, it's like quite an upright form. So that's very pretty. The various types of sumac, you know, by visiting beautiful botanic gardens, college campuses, there's more and more beautiful civic projects that, that we visit around the world where they're really using native plants, which, which do have four season interest. There's a fragrant sumac that you see in a lot of uh, civic plantings these days, which is quite low. I think sometimes the key is to, I don't want to say think outside the box, that's so cliche, <laughs> but just to have an awareness that there are alternatives to planting a maple or complements to planting maples. Um, one of my favorite fall foliage trees is the tupelo. And that you mentioned was growing all over the United States. It shows up in different sort of sizes, depending on where in the country you are. But that might be an option depending on where people happen to be. Out in California, where I grew up, my mother had a pistache tree. Oh, right. That had gorgeous foliage. And it really, I mean, it's not otherwise a region unless I think you planted something deliberately just because we have a lot of California live oaks and Mm -hmm. not as many maples. So there are ways to kind of achieve that color. And then another favorite of mine that you have planted, uh, which I think is good for wet climate, is the service berry or oh, June right. berry. Mm-hmm. has beautiful foliage. Right, which can grow. I mean, there are plants that are wetland dependent. They'll only grow in a wetland. And then there's ones that are wetland tolerant. And so the service berry, Amelanchier, called a June berry, it gets berries in June in some regions. In other regions, it's a different time. And so that really has spectacular Maybe the feature with trees or shrubs or vines where the foliage is particularly special, one feature they often have is that there's a modulation of color. So it's, let's say like plants that don't do this, let's say that a a ginkgo or an aspen, they turn one color, they turn gold, let's say, which is very exciting and dramatic. And then that's it. There are species like a shrub that we like to use, Father Gilla, the sumacs do it, the oak leaf hydrangea, where Within a given leaf, there's a gradation of color. And uh, there's another very special plant, the parodia, which is a Persian ironwood, which is used more and more as it's a street tree. So within a given leaf, it's just a matter of inches sometimes, it might go from gold to red to purple. And so there's like this technicolor experience. And the plant, the Persian ironwood, the parodia, that really, it's, it's like a tie-dye phenomenon where a leaf will be almost purple black and then the same leaf will turn red and then gold and the various leaves on the tree will be doing that alternatively and it goes on and on it can be like a six-week display depending on the weather great well i hope we've opened the aperture a little bit for what folks might be able to envisage when they go planting and if fall foliage that color is an important part of your seasonal experience there our options, and hopefully something that will work in your landscape and, and again, give interest year-round. 
I'm glad we've covered some of the activities that one can undertake in the fall because it's still an active time to get out there. Of course, winter can be gorgeous too. So, (laughs) you know, winters are longer depending on where you might be. And there's a lot to experience in the landscape there. And I'm sure we'll have future episodes on that. Was there anything we have yet to cover? I think this is my, (laughs) I ask this at the end of every episode, (laughs) just in case. Well, let's see a couple of points. I did that that a woody plant conference, I visited that at Swarthmore College near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They had an espalier ginkgo tree. Like it was on a building, I don't know if it was a dormitory, other type of a building. It was probably about three stories tall. And so the, it was a tree that was trained to this building, and it was the whole height, like, you know, th- three stories. And that would have beautiful fall color. That's very special. The various vines. So I think of the Ivy League and what they're... What, those buildings have Boston ivy, which gets beautiful fall color, and then it loses those leaves. One of my favorites is the Virginia creeper. I don't oh, know what right. the, well, we'll always put the, I'm actually going to comb through and make sure we get all the species we've mentioned and their scientific names for those who might like to look for them at nurseries. Yeah, that's a very that's special a one. And then for, for sort of a landscape care, landscape maintenance, the various parts of uh, caring for the leaves. The leaves can be mulched. You can whether it's a professional that has a mulching mower, or maybe you have one yourself, or just a regular lawnmower, by running over those leaves repeatedly, we'll shred them, and then that is the best mulch possible for the lawn. Oh, that's great. Instead of taking the leaves away, that is like, that's very important. There's a lot of resources going to taking leaves away, where it's, and it really depletes the lawn. So having for the lawn to be regenerated, and for the other beds in the property, and then, like for instance, in the north, Hydrangeas can freeze in the winter and then not flower because the because it's frost damage. So particularly with a new planting, mounding the leaves up to about two feet or so around some of the shrubs. And then in the spring, of course, they'd be taken away. But they would offer extra insulation to the roots. Those are great recommendations. Um, we'll also link to resources that share more information about that. It's so nice to think about returning nutrients to the landscape rather than removing it from the landscape. And we hope our listeners benefit from some of the topics that we've mentioned here today. Mm-hmm. Look for a lot of information in our show notes. We're trying to make ourselves as easy as possible to find and connect with. You can check us out on Facebook. We are under In the Landscape. It's in underscore landscape for our Twitter feed. And if you go to our website, kinggardeninc.com, You can find our podcast page, and that has links to all of the podcast carriers if you haven't been able to find us directly. We're new. (laughs) We're getting new (laughs) listeners every week. We're thrilled, but it might mean we're a little harder to find if you just do a search. I did a count. I think there was as many as 37 or more countries listening, and I think about the same number, like 37, 38 states within within the United States. Fantastic. Of course, we have our experience with our specific region. We're so delighted to share about that with you. And if it's interesting to listen to, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. If you would like us to cover your region or you have a question, feel free to drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. And you can also find us on Instagram under kinggarden. And we would just love to hear from you to add your voice to the conversation and talk about even more things landscape because it's really thrilling. And for a future episode, I think you mentioned we're going to cover Chicago. 
Another one is, like I said, I guess a teaser would be, we're going to talk about Habitat too. That's true. Yeah, I, I've teased about that a little bit. We're still doing our <laughs> research on that because we want to get it right when you deal with the animals as well as plants. You're getting really specific and scientific. We're also going to have an episode on pruning basics. And I mm-hmm. think that might be a big one. So we've talked a lot about when to prune and how to prune things like apple trees or boxwood specifically. But we realize we want to open it to as wide an audience as possible. And mm-hmm. so we're going to start at the beginning and uh, talk tools and different types of plants and hopefully give you some information there. Beautiful. Great. So we look forward to seeing you speaking with you again on another Wednesday morning or wherever you pick us up and look for us online. Take care. Thank you. 